Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast, brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, and Orvis Fly Fishing. One of the things that I love about running this podcast is the opportunities I get to meet new captains and learn about fisheries that I might not otherwise get to encounter. During a recent conversation I had with a friend, Drew Chacon, he pointed me in the direction of a freshwater guide in his stomping grounds of Fort Myers. In this podcast, we sit down with the award-winning writer and fishing guide, Debbie Hansen of She Fishes Too, and discuss guiding in Florida's freshwater fisheries, the importance of always being prepared, and how her grandfather taught her to pay attention and put together the puzzle pieces of a fishery during her early days fishing the waters of Michigan's Stanley Lake. We also discuss helping more females engage in the fishing industry and her experience of helping at-risk teens encounter the water for the first time. Debbie is filled with passion for waters and is filled with great knowledge. We hope that you enjoy this conversation that we had together. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you. You know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet and it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go and sometimes just that quiet space is is what we need and especially in this day and age you have a fly rod in your hand it's this tool that takes you to beautiful places you meet hopefully wonderful people and it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure when the fish is coming that shot within a shot that timer starts beep 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 No one else knew anything anyway, and you just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? Out? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Hey Debbie, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. I'm excited to sit down with you and talk to you about She Fishes Too and about your fishery down in South Florida and what you're doing with freshwater species. But before we get into all of that, do you mind just giving us a background about how you first got into fishing? Not at all. I would be happy to. Yeah, so I grew up fishing with my grandfather on the glacial lakes of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan when I was a little girl. From the time I was basically five years old, my grandfather had me out fishing with him in a little aluminum boat on a lake called Stanley Lake in the Upper Peninsula, just outside of Iron River, Michigan. And those memories just from fishing with him when I was a little girl and just the magic of that particular fishery and just being in awe of, I think, his his knowledge just really made such an impression on me. He was an avid outdoorsman. He hunted, he fished, and just remembering watching him and how he would open his tackle box and how he knew exactly which lures to select for different parts of the lake and how he knew exactly where the largemouth bass would be near the lily pads on the shallow end of the north end of the lake all the way down to you know where he could find walleye and some of those deeper weed beds in that lake it just it really made an impression on me so I got you know I started fishing with him he really was the one that mentored me from the time I was young and you know the funny thing about it is is that I had an older brother and we both started fishing with my grandfather together and my brother got into hunting but never really got into fishing and and I just 
took to fishing. I, I fell in love with it, and the rest was history. Mm. And in what ways did your grandfather as an angler shape you into who you are today? Oh, my gosh. In so many ways. He, he was... He was just a really strong individual, exceptionally patient <laughs> to teach two kids how to fish, especially two really young kids, and to bring us out on the boat with him. And um, so he was patient. He was very strong, a little bit stubborn. And, you know, he really just encouraged me to not just get out there and do it and not just not just spend time with him on the water, but also ask a lot of the questions of him as far as, mm. okay, why are we fishing this particular area? Or why might I be using this particular lure in this particular color in this part of the lake? And, mm. you know, it really started to pique my curiosity. And from the time, you know, from the time, all those times I spent with him, it just, my passion and my curiosity for the sport just continued to grow. So he was just incredibly influential in so many different ways. Hmm. And how did you end up getting from fishing over there in Michigan to where you are in South Florida today? Yeah, well, so when I was, when I was young, my family and I, we actually lived in a suburb outside of Chicago, and the, my grandparents had a summer home on Stanley Lake in the UP. So I used to spend any summers I had off school basically with my grandparents because both of my parents worked full time. So I lived in the suburbs of Chicago and spent every single summer I could at my grandparents' lake house fishing. <laughs> and then once I graduated from college and I got into the workforce and I started working in downtown Chicago, I wasn't fishing anywhere near as much as I would have liked to, of course, at that particular time in my life, but I had been down to Florida as a child, coming down here on vacations with my family, and specifically come down to southwest Florida, the area that I live in now, the Naples-Fort Myers area, and so, you know, I knew of the area, and then when I was in college, I met a gentleman, we were engaged, and his parents ended up buying a marina on Fort Myers Beach, so we moved down together, and even though our relationship didn't work out for the long term, I decided, you know, this is really where I want to be. I can pursue my passion, and I can fish year-round, and I just absolutely loved the fact that I wasn't restricted to, you know, pretty much just fishing only a certain number of days every year because of the weather or you know, work or other factors. So it just, it just really appealed to me on so many different levels. And, and I stayed down here and started off in the advertising industry down here and then made a big career switch. Yeah. And, and I was curious about that because it seems like a pretty big career switch to go from something like advertising to being a, a fishing guide. Could you tell us a little bit about what led you to that and then how you kind of navigated that switch? Yeah, absolutely. Well, t about 12 years ago, I was working full-time in online advertising sales. And I had seen in my career people who, at that time, blogging was really starting to become popular. And I was seeing how people were starting blogs online 
basically focused around their hobbies and I had been fishing a lot more since I moved down to Florida and I had gotten a lot more involved in saltwater fishing, but I still had all those great memories of freshwater fishing and I still wanted to, you know, pursue freshwater fishing and also learn more about saltwater fishing. So I thought, well, you know what, in my spare time, in the weekends, in the evenings, I'm going to start a blog. And so I did. And right around that same time, um, both of my parents, unfortunately, were diagnosed with cancer. And it was really a big awakening for me personally. You know, I was really, I wanted to be there for them. And then, of course, you know, I kept thinking to myself, you know, life is just so short and it's so precious. And, you know, tomorrow's not promised to any one of us. And I think, you know, when you're a kid and you're growing up and even when you're in college, you kind of just think like your parents are always going to be there. They're always going to be around. So it was a real awakening for me. And I just realized that I was kind of stressed out at the time. I was in a sales position and it was really intense in terms of having to make a quota every single month. And, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not the economy was good or bad or there were external factors going on, it didn't matter. You know, you still had to make your numbers and you still had to, you know, report those numbers every month and you had to have a certain number of leads in your pipeline every month. So, I started this blog, like I said, the evenings on the weekends, I'd work on it whenever I could. And about a year or two later, one of the marketing managers at takemefishing.org reached out to me and she said, you know, I I see you started this blog. We really are looking for some female voices on our blog, on our website. We'd like to grow it. We'd like to expand it. So would you be open to sending us a proposal for writing for our blog at takemefishing.org? And I was like, well, absolutely, giving me the opportunity to write about something I love and continue to learn about the sport, absolutely. So I I sent in a proposal, and I'm still working with them today. (laughs) And um, so that's kind of how things took off with regards to my outdoor writing. And then after I did that for a certain number of years, Um, I think I was blogging for about four or five years, and then a friend of mine just said, you know, you have such a knack for teaching people, and for, you know, you've got so much patience, you've got such a way of encouraging people, you really should consider guiding. Hmm. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to give it a try, I'm going to go and get my captain's license. And even though that's not something that's required, if you're fishing a non-navigable waterway here in the state of Florida, I felt that I felt very strongly about the fact that, you know, if I'm going to be taking people out on the water, I'm responsible for them. And I need to know, you know, I was planning on going through all the first aid and CPR anyway. And I didn't want to limit myself because later on down the line, I figured I probably would really enjoy getting into doing some freshwater guiding as well. So I went through captain school and yeah, now, so now I've been guiding for three years. Next season will be my fourth season and I, I just absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. And could you tell us a little bit about what type of trips you run because when we initially first started having conversations about this I was really fascinated in kind of what 
it looks like to be a freshwater fishing guide or a predominantly freshwater fishing guide, I should say. Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, down here in Florida, we have, you know, we don't have trout, obviously. So we're fishing for warm water species. And our primary warm water species down here is, of course, the Florida strain largemouth bass. And to me, I just get so excited about taking people out and showing them our native species and even getting some of them into and excited about learning about some of our non-native species that we have. But a lot of people don't realize, you know, for example, down here, we have a lot of people who visit Florida from other states, people that come down from the Midwest or New York, New Jersey, and they're familiar with catching largemouth bass up in their state. But what a lot of people don't realize is that our Florida strain largemouth bass is really special and it's different. So, you know, when I started to learn more and more about our Florida bass, the more excited I got about, you know, guiding for the species and putting people on these, these fish and just getting them to see how different they are from the fish that they're used to fishing for at home. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, really getting excited about the fact that in addition to all the wonderful saltwater fishing we have here in Florida, we have a lot of fantastic freshwater opportunities when it comes to fly fishing and artificial fishing. So, you know, I really like to encourage people not to come down and, and bypass freshwater fishing just because, you know, I mean, I think saltwater fishing obviously gets a lot more exposure and it's the one thing people do want to do when they come down here from other states because in a lot of other areas, maybe they can't do it. But our freshwater fisheries are pretty special and pretty unique here, too. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about at different points in the year, you move to different kind of areas or species. Could you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah. So, you know, the, the counties that I fish here in southwest Florida, it just, you know, the, the area that I fish really depends on what's going on during a different season of the year. So say, for example, we start getting into our rainy season, there's certain canal systems that are connected with weirs where there's a lot of moving water. Once those rains start coming and the bite just, it turns on, it gets a lot of the forage moving and, and, and the bite is just really hot. But then in other areas, you know, during our, dry season, for example, in some of the area, the freshwater areas of the Everglades, when we're in drought mode during the drought time of year, which is basically, you know, our winter, what happens is the fish all filter out of the marshes because the marshes dry up and then they just, they stack up in those canals. And during the dry season in those areas, it's a lot more productive in terms of fly fishing and fishing with artificials. So, you know, it's, it's just, it's also really interesting to me to, you know, put all the pieces of the puzzle together based on the seasons and what's going on in these different ecosystems, depending on the particular time of year and rainfall levels and all mm -hmm. of those parts of the equation. Yeah. And when I think about fishing for bass, like most people, I think, I, I think about like working a plastic worm or a spinnerbait or a, a topwater frog. Yeah. I've caught some caught some bass on the fly. I think I use like clousers and maybe a, a topwater eater too. 
Well, what are you predominantly doing? Are you doing a lot of topwater stuff or do you have a, a big diversity of what you kind of what part of the water column you're fishing in? You know, you know, I do, Hunter. I would say that definitely when we start getting into our rainy season, when we get into more of what we call here in Florida our summer weather pattern, where we start to get the afternoon rain showers between like 3 and 6 p.m., that to me is prime topwater time. There are usually in most lakes, there's like some emergent shoreline vegetation and I'll work a lot of those topwater poppers right along that emergent shoreline vegetation or have my clients do that with those specific types of flies, those topwater patterns, gurglers, poppers. But then, you know, for me personally, if it's say, you know, the middle of summer and I've got clients on the boat and, you know, and everybody fishes differently. So, you know, what I am going to say may different may differ from what somebody else does, but primarily, you know, I'm looking for, my feeling is big largemouth bass, particularly when the water temperature is not in their preferred feeding range, which is between 65 and 80 degrees. They're very lazy and sluggish. So in that case, I really like to fish deeper, much deeper in the water column. So one of my favorite patterns that I use in the summer months when it's really warm, especially if I'm fishing midday, is Dan Blanton's Flashtail Whistler. And it's got weighted bead chain eyes. It gets down deep in the water column. And I've had a lot of success with that particular fly. He actually, I believe, designed it and tied it to be fished in salt water, but it works just as well for, for largemouth bass. So that's one of my favorite patterns. And then um, in the middle of the water column, I like to use Junior Burke's Craft Firmino. So, um, and then I also like Chuck Craft's Crelex pattern if I'm fishing in, say, like cloudy or murky water because it's got a lot of flash. And I think it's a lot easier for those fish to see in conditions where the water is murkier or stained mm -hmm. and are you fishing a lot of big kind of open space or are you doing rivers i mean what what type of water do you predominantly fish in yeah so it's a mixture between lakes and canal systems it's primarily canal systems and you know the difference is a lot of people like you were saying they think of bass fishing and they think of going up to lake okeechobee or going up to lake ixtapoga near sebring and in those cases you know most bass anglers are you know they're they're using bait casters they're using super heavy gear mm -hmm. and you know they're they're punching mats and they're using heavy jigs well, you know, the areas that I fish are much different from that. Um, I'm fishing, sure, there's going to be some vegetation, but it's not going to be anything like, you know, those thick hydrilla beds or really thick lily pads. I mean, in this area, mm -hmm. the canals and the lakes where I fish, there's generally going to be some patches of lily pads and there's going to be some bulrushes around the shoreline, but it's not that thick, thick, thick vegetation that we see closer to the center of the state. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I feel like a lot of times fly fishermen, saltwater inshore fly fishermen overthink things. And, you know, there's just so many different variations and patterns and colors and, you know, and they're always just swapping flies and, you know, oh, I need I need it to be half an inch, you know, shorter. So they take out their scissors and trim the fly. And it's just a lot of, in my opinion, at times overthinking. And I felt like, man, nobody overthinks it more than 
fly fisherman until I went to ICAST last year and I saw all of the bass stuff. And then I was like, <laughs> okay, absolutely. You know, 400 different frog, you know, soft plastic. Some of these guys are carrying just craziness. How do, do you, do you find yourself being somebody who carries a lot of different flies, a lot of different patterns, or do you keep it relatively simple? You know, Hunter, I really keep it relatively simple. I mean, there's definitely times where, you know, again, I think that when the fish are feeding outside of that preferred temperature range and they're maybe not as active, I will scale down the size of my flies and I'll go smaller, like maybe down to a size six. And then when they're more active and I think they're more willing to take larger profiles, then I'll go up sometimes all the way to a size two. It, it just depends. And, you know, that's the thing. And to me, that's the fun of it is putting all of those little pieces together. But I, I do mm -hmm. keep it fairly simple. I mean, I have, you know, four or five patterns that are my go-tos, which are pretty much the patterns that I just mentioned. And those are the staples in my fly box at all times. <laughs> do you see a lot of people who are predominantly saltwater or predominantly like mountain trout make certain mistakes when trying to catch um, warm water fish? Yes, yes, definitely. But I know when I've been trout fishing, I've driven all of the trout guides crazy because mm -hmm. <laughs> they always <laughs> wonder why I'm not <laughs> setting, you know, why, why didn't you set? Why didn't you? And when people come down here and they fish with me and they're used to trout fishing, you know, what happens with my clients is they'll yank the fly away from the bass before the bass even has a chance to grab mm -hmm. it. So I always have to remind them, let the fish take the fly, give it a chance to take the fly and don't, you know, otherwise you're just going to pull it right away from the fish, mm -hmm. right out of his mouth, and you're going to end up missing that hit. So it is, it, it's really interesting, but that's the thing that I just love about our sport. You know, there's just, you're always learning something new from different people that you go out with and, mm -hmm. you know, different experiences that you have as a guide in your off season, when you get out to fish, you know, you think, you know, something about your species and maybe you do, but then when it comes time to go somewhere else and experience a different fishery and a different species, there's a whole lot more that there is to learn. And there's a lot that, you know, you don't know. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I was kind of curious too, are there major differences between trying to catch a peacock bass and trying to catch a largemouth bass? I've always seen like peacock fly flies being like looking like something out of cotton candy, you know, factory is bright, big colors. But what are some of the major differences between targeting the two fish? So first and foremost is just the speed at which you work your fly. Peacock bass are extremely aggressive, and if you have any break in the cadence, your stripping cadence, they will lose interest and turn away. If you see mm. a peacock bass is, you know, if you're fishing somewhere where there's clear water and that fish sees your fly and starts to pursue it, you need to keep that fly moving. If you pause you know it's kind of like if you're fishing with spinning gear and if you've ever fished a top water and you know you've had a fish you come at you see it waking behind your top water and you break that cadence of the top water the fish generally tends to turn away because something doesn't look right and it's the same thing with peacock bass and peacock bass love they love top water poppers they love those bright fire tiger colors the bright chartreuse orange yellows 
And yeah, I mean, really for them, the faster you strip it, the more it triggers that instinct for them to strike and pursue or pursue and then strike. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, a favorite fish to target or a favorite type of trip to run as a guide? You know, the, I hate to say this, but I really, I like them all for different reasons. I, you know, again, I just, I have this really strong passion for our Florida strain bass just because of how much I've learned about them over the past several years. And well, the peacock, but again, while the peacock bass aren't native to the state of Florida, they were brought in in the 1980s. Um, by Florida Fish and Wildlife to help us control some of our invasive species in the Miami-Dade and Broward County areas. There's still, the peacock bass is still a fantastic sport fish that brings millions of freshwater sport fishing revenue to our state. So mm -hmm. I like, I, I love the peacock bass too, because it's, it's aggressive and it's, it's like fighting a smallmouth bass on fly on steroids. I mean, they're just, they're so aggressive. They're incredibly hard fighters. So, you know, I, I, I like a lot of the different species, but you know what, Hunter, to be honest with you, if you put a five weight or a four weight fly rod in my hand and I'm out there fishing for bluegill, I get a ton of, you know, joy and happiness out of doing that too. Cause it, it kind of takes you back to the good old days and the basics. And it's just, mm -hmm. there's something to be said for that too. So, um, so it's hard for me to pick a favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I understand. I understand. Well, I could talk about, uh, the freshwater fishing all day long, but I am interested too, to talk to you some about the guiding aspect. Um, what do you feel like are the most important things to really try to set yourself up for success on a, for a day on the water? The most important thing, that's a great question to set myself up for success. That would be, you know, number one, um, starting to learn more about different envi environmental factors and weather-related factors and how those factors come into play when you're guiding. So, you know, taking a look at wind direction and figuring out coming up with a plan. I think, you know, having a plan and whether or not you get out on the water and you need to change that plan and because, you know, it always happens. You get on the water and you think the wind's going to be out of the south and it ends up being out of the west or, you know, something changes in that equation and you've got to account for that and, and switch it up and, you know, be able to, to roll with it. But still, I think, you know, thinking about all those different factors and having a game plan of sorts in your head is probably the most important thing to set yourself up for success. And then I think, you know, just really when you get out there on the water, learning how to really pay attention to your clients, their abilities, their strengths and their weaknesses, and, and really, just, you know, work with them as a team. I mean, you're a team essentially when you're out there and you want to do whatever you can do to ensure their success. Mm -hmm. Is is there a way that you keep notes? Because I've interviewed a lot of people over the past year. I think I've interviewed over 45 different guides. I haven't published all of them yet, but I haven't really found, everybody talks about different variables. The salt water, it would be, you know, the, the tides and everything. Um, but is there a way that you try to keep up with that or do you just kind of use your intuition based off of years of doing it? No, I keep a log and it's nothing real formal, but I, I definitely keep a fishing log. So after all my trips, I come home and I make a few notes, even if it's just four or five sentences that way, 
I have something to go back and I can start to, you know, I mean, it takes time to put together patterns, but I think that, you know, learning how to pattern fish is one of the real keys mm -hmm. to being successful as a guide year after year. And, and it mm -hmm. definitely takes time. And there's times when you think you've got a pattern figured out and those fish will throw you off. But again, you know, those challenges are kind of what I really enjoy about it. Um, you know, you, you do your best to put all those little puzzle pieces together and figure it out to give you your best, you and your clients, your best chance of having a great day out there and catching fish. But, um, you know, I, I really, to me personally, I think keeping a fishing log is so incredibly important. It's so mm -hmm. important. I mean, cause how many times have we all gotten off the water and we've seen something when we've been out there and we've, you know, we've read the water, we've noticed certain type of forage in a certain area, a certain type of structure, or, you know, the fish feeding in a certain way or behaving in a certain way under certain conditions. And then, you know, in the hustle and bustle of getting all the gear loaded back up and trailering the boat back and doing whatever, you know, we kind of lose track and kind of forget about what we saw mm -hmm. and what we experienced. And then the next day it's on to the next thing. So I think keeping a log is, is really, really important, at least in my, my personal opinion. Yeah. And it's kind of full circle because you mentioned when you were a girl fishing with your grandfather in Stanley Lake that he would know where the fish were. And obviously he had an understanding of the patterns, whether they be on the North part or in the, in the shade or lily pads. And, uh, you know, it seems like everybody kind of handles their notes differently. You know, some people just write them down in a journal. Some people, uh, use apps or spreadsheets or, uh, some people just bank in, in their head and can just hold in a lot of information in their head, uh, that just kind of, I guess, compounds over time. Are there other factors too, that you feel like as a guide, you know, really helps you produce the best day possible for for your client? I think organization is key. You know, I, mm -hmm. I just can't say enough about being organized and being ready for that day. I mean, to me, you know, my clients are, they're giving me the honor of spending the day on the water with me. They're, they're, they've chosen me when, you know, there are how many other guides out there and, and mm -hmm. I want to make sure that I am maximizing their time and again, giving them the best possible experience that I can. So, you know, I'm always really careful the night before to make sure I've got extra leaders tied and mm -hmm. that I've got, you know, all the flies I'm going to need in several different colors so that if we need to change anything up based on what's going on with the water or the wind or any other factors, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that I'm just, I'm ready. I'm ready for whatever may happen that day. Mm -hmm. Is that something, have you always been that way or um, has that been something that's evolved over time just through having instances where, where you weren't ready? It's definitely evolved over time. I think, you know, as a recreational angler, especially, you know, you, you just, mm -hmm. when you're out there fishing and it's just you, you're not as mindful of a lot of that stuff. You know, you're in the middle mm -hmm. of a hot bite and you're just like, okay, well, I'm just going to shove this fly back here in this, you know, pocket of my backpack or whatever. And, and then you forget about it. And the next time you go there mm -hmm. and you try to find that fly, you can't find it. So you end up grabbing another one. But, you know, when you're, when you're guiding and you know that, your success may depend on you 
just quickly being able to grab that fly that you need at just the right time, pulling it out of your box and, and, mm -hmm. and tying it on so that your client can take advantage of, you know, those fish that you see schooling up in that one particular area or, you know, those ba bass that are busting baits right around, you know, the shoreline. It, it's being ready and being prepared is just, it, it's, it's mm -hmm. so important, but it was definitely something that evolved over the past few years, I would say of me guiding, I've gotten a lot more meticulous <laughs> about mm -hmm. my organizational skills and, and making sure that I am really prepared. Yeah. And I was reading a, uh, a Steve Rinella book on hunting and he had something I thought was really good. He was talking about gear and he was saying, you know, when you're getting all your gear organized and you're buying good gear, you want the, the weakest link, you know, in the chain to be you. You know, you don't want it to be that you couldn't find the fly. You don't want it to be that you bought bad products. You want it to be, you know, the, the human element. And it kind of ties with what you're saying, too. You know, you you want to have every little edge you can with your client, you know, when it comes to going out for the day. And you don't you don't want to be, have a missing fly or forget leaders or whatever, you know. So that makes perfect sense. I, I was curious, too. Um, you know, you had mentioned earlier that you had done some writing for Take Me Fishing and you started your blog, She Fishes Too. And obviously there's not a ton of female representation in the fishing industry. It seems like it is growing. And I know Orvis has their 50-50 initiative. And it seems like, um, to me at least, every year I'm seeing more representation. But nevertheless, there's still a pretty big discrepancy between the two. What's the, your experience been like as a female guide? It's it's been it's been very positive. I have to say, you know, the main thing is whether you're male or female. I mean, to me, fishing really it it doesn't have a gender. And when mm -hmm. I grew up fishing with my grandfather, he never thought, "Oh, well, Debbie's a girl, so I'm not going to take her out on the water." And mm -hmm. you know, to me, I was so comfortable doing it because Growing up, I would rather be out catching frogs and salamanders and making mud pies and building forts than anything else. And so it just felt like it was the right place for me to be. Like I was meant to be doing it and meant to be in the outdoors. And I think, you know, today it's it's one of those situations where, you know, I don't want us to get into one of those one of those. I don't want to say cliche, but into mm -hmm. a mindset of, well, you know, and I would never want one of my clients to say, well, I'm going to go with Debbie because she's a female guide. I mean, mm -hmm. I want them to go with me because I'm good at what I do. Mm -hmm. And no matter what you do in life, it should be your skill and your ability and your experience that, that draws people to you as a guide or regardless, whatever you do as a profession. And mm -hmm. so I love seeing more women getting out there on the water and, you know, really embracing fishing, both recreationally and professionally. But, you know, my hope is that and there's a lot of great role models out there. You know, I mean, I know mm -hmm. I listened to your podcast with Lacey and Lacey is one of the best role models for sure. April Vokey, another one. And it's, you know, so it's to me, really, it's just, it, it's great to see more women out there and more women mm -hmm. that are specifically, you know, very, very knowledgeable at what they do, very experienced at what they do, and mm -hmm. just really, you know, 
have a fantastic reputation for just being good, very good guides. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, I was in a conversation with Drew Chacon and I was asking him about great guides in the area and he brought you up because, uh, not because you were a female, but because he thought that you would do well with this podcast and you, that what you're doing with your business is really interesting too, with the freshwater take on things. And, um, I definitely totally respect what you're saying too, about making sure that you're you're just trying to be the best guide and the best angler you can be and, you know, not worrying about gender, ethnicity, any of that, but just trying to really focus on the angling side of things. I'm curious, what do you feel like pushes women away? Because, you know, I have a a young daughter who's about to be four and she loves fishing and going out on the water. She doesn't even realize that there's any misrepresentation or she's not aware of all of that. And somewhere from being, you know, five years old and fishing with your grandpa and then moving down to South Florida and getting involved in the, the scene, you know, obviously you realize, wow, there's not a ton of representation and you've probably seen a lot of other people fall away. What do you feel like pushes women away from angling? I think in a lot of cases, it's it's just feeling a little overwhelmed or maybe a little bit intimidated or maybe not having enough support. I know that Take Me Fishing did do some research on that very question and what they determined is that you know while there were a lot of women that were getting involved in the sport initially a lot of them weren't we weren't seeing the retention rates and the reason for that is because they weren't seeing themselves represented out there so in other words when they would go flip through a fishing magazine they would see you know a middle-aged guy in a bass boat but they weren't seeing any women out there Mm -hmm. and so they weren't really seeing themselves and they really weren't feeling supported. So I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, as a fishing community, it's our responsibility, not just for women, but any newcomers to the sport to make people feel like, you know, our sport is approachable and that, you know, and, and that's one of the reasons to be honest with you, Hunter, that I really enjoy freshwater fishing is because I feel that it's, you know, it's a very sort of approachable, um, kind of down to earth way to fish. I mean, you know, you can get out in, you know, my boat, I just have a 15 foot tracker John boat. It's nothing fancy. I've got a little four horse outboard on it. Um, it it does whatever I, you know, need it to do for the areas where I fish and it's fine, Mm -hmm. but you know, my clients don't have to make, they don't have to make an 80, you know, 60, 70, 80 foot cast. They can, you know, they experience success early on. And even if it's just catching a few bass or some bluegill, it gets them hooked on the sport and keeps them engaged with it. And I really think that's the key too, is, is just really getting people out there, getting them involved and and encouraging them to experience that success early on. Whereas, you know, a lot of times I think people get intimidated because they walk into a fly shop and all of a sudden someone's asking them, well, do you, do you need, you know, an intermediate line, a sinking line, a floating line? And, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. their eyes go crossed and they just feel like, oh my gosh, like this is just way too overwhelming for me. And, you know, it's so complicated we really need to to break it down and make it more approachable for people so that they understand that, you know, yeah, it's like anything. It's like, you know, bass fishing with artificials. It's like 
offshore fishing, you can make it as expensive and complicated as you want to make it, or you can make it as simple and as affordable as you want to make it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just hope that people realize, especially, you know, the next generation, you know, you don't have to have thousands of dollars to get into fly fishing. You can get out there and fish in your backyard pond and catch some bluegill and that's going to be mm-hmm. a great introduction to the sport. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's good with you, I'd love to transition to a little bit of rapid fire questions. I got a list of things I'm curious about. Yeah, absolutely. So one is I had listened to a podcast that you were on and you had mentioned that you had done an event where you took, um, I, I don't know if it was under, it was underprivileged teens or, uh, at risk teens or. Yes. Um, it was teenage girls at risk. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Out on the water. What was that experience like? And in what ways did that kind of shape you as a, as a guide? Oh my gosh. So, That experience was probably one of the most monumental experiences in my entire fishing career, to be honest with you, because, Hunter, to see these girls and their demeanor, you know, most of them, they live within just a few miles of the beach here in southwest Florida, and they had never been out on the water or on a boat, and they had never been fishing before. So to see them, to see the transition in their demeanor from the moment they walked on the boat and they were very apprehensive and very self-conscious to after being on the boat for four or five hours and catching a couple of fish, how their confidence level improved. They were laughing. They were starting to open up about, you know, maybe some of the things that might've been going on at home and Mm -hmm. just really, it, it was just amazing to me how much, these girls really, they, they just opened up and how much their self-confidence skyrocketed in just, like I said, a half a day on the water. And I just kept thinking mm-hmm. to myself, you know, there's definitely something here. You know, the, the feeling of reeling in a fish and the success of a catch is, is something that it's an empowering feeling. And, and, you know, these girls are a prime example of that. Mm. I'm sure that was a really special day too, just to get out on the water with people who are new to angling. Is that something that you get to do often as a guide is, do you find your anglers being a lot of first time or do you find a lot of people who are pretty seasoned? You know, it's, it's a mix, but I think that, you know, to get back to your earlier question. Yeah. I mean, I think that that experience, seeing how it impacted girls who had never done it before, definitely made me want to get more people, more newcomers out there and introduce more newcomers to the sport for sure. But, you know, it's, it is, it is nice to, to have a mix because I think Mm -hmm. everyone has different experiences when it comes to fishing. And like we said earlier, even if someone's been used to fishing for trout, they maybe haven't experienced, you know, the, the topwater take of a, a largemouth bass, which to me, there's nothing else like it. Mm-hmm. I know also in that same interview, you had talked about Drew Chacon and him being kind of a, a helpful mentor figure or shaping figure in your life as an angler. I was curious because a lot of people who listen to this podcast, myself included, you know, would love to be helpful and would love to be, you know, 
um, that type of figure, what things did he do that, or you could kind of broaden the question, what things do great mentors do that, that you find to be really helpful? You know, just be believing in your strengths and really seeing where your strengths are and continuing to help you nurture those strengths. And I think that's definitely, I mean, Drew is just such a professional and he is so, um, you know, he's so fantastic from a business-minded standpoint when it comes to the fishing industry. And I think really that's pretty much what we all have to be as guides. If we're going to set ourselves apart and we're going to, you know, continue to be successful, you have to have that business mind. And so, you know, Drew and a lot of the other people who have been great mentors to me, Joe Mahler, George Poveromo, Alberto Nee, I mean, they've all just been really helpful with exchanging information, sharing information, and also, you know, helping people realize their strengths and really mm -hmm. helping you focus on, you know, here's something I see that you're, you're really good at. Here's some areas that you could also work on. And, um, you know, I think that that's, that's really key and just, and just being supportive. I mean, you know, we're, we're all, here in this industry together and we've got the fishing community is phenomenal in terms of the way that you know we all support and I think you know for the most part respect each other and to me it's just we we all have different experiences so we when we can share information and and just you know a lot of times as a first-time guide I think you know or in my given that I'm in my first few years of guiding yeah there's a lot of things that I wonder when I come home, you know, some days are, are fantastic, just like any other guide out there. I've got good days. I've got bad days. And, you know, for the first year, especially, I would really beat myself up every time I come home, if I didn't catch a bass that was five pounds or, or bigger. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of my mentors said to me, you know, listen, you really have to stop putting so much pressure on yourself because what you consider to be a fantastic day on the water isn't, your, your clients don't have that same expectation. You know, a lot of them are coming down. It's a vacation for them. They want to have a nice relaxing day on the water. They want to catch a few fish, but you know, they're not expecting you to put them on a trophy every single time. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think that, I think that just having people to, to, you know, share information with and say, Hey, this is kind of something I'm going through. Have you been through this? And that camaraderie is really key. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So the next question I have is what is something that you're trying to work on as a guide that you feel like will take your business to the next level? That's a, another really good question. I think just, you know, really working to build relationships with with clients and and just again give them the best possible experience out there on the water and mm -hmm. you know definitely we just talked a little bit about you know putting we, how we all put pressure on ourselves and how guides put a lot of pressure on themselves to to 
you know, put people on fish, which obviously is, I mean, that's important because that's what we do and that's what our clients count on us for. But I think that, you know, there's also the other side of that where sometimes we put way too much pressure on ourselves and then that translates over to our clients. They, they pick up on that energy and instead of it being a fun day, it turns into this, you know, day where they can feel our intensity. And, you know, really I think it's, it's, it's building those relationships with clients and just really giving them a great day, a good experience out there on the water, having fun and, and just really teaching them things too. And being there for them as far as an instructor, as an educator and giving them, you know, that whole, that whole package and the best version of yourself for that particular day. And, you know, having a sense of humor and, Mm -hmm. and just really keeping things upbeat and making sure that they, they have a great time. Mm. Um, so my next question is, and I like to, I like to kind of do these types of questions, but if you could go back to yourself at five years old, chasing fish around Stanley Lake with your grandfather, what advice would you give yourself? Just relax and have fun and don't be so intense when you get a little older. (laughs) (laughs) I think that, you know, when I, and keeping that childhood enthusiasm and always remembering, you know, going back to your roots. And and that really is what brought me into my career as a guide was all those great memories that I had with my grandfather and, you know, watching the sunset on the lake and just, you know, paying really close attention to all those different variables when we were out on the water and, Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, yeah, it it would just be take a little bit more time to, to, um, you know, relax and, and enjoy the experience. Remembering that you fell in love with this sport for a very specific reason. You know, there's just so many different aspects of, of fishing. And it really, to me is every day you go out there on the water, you learn something new. It's a continual education process and you're never going to know everything there is to know. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm sure in 10 more years, I'll still be learning. So, Mm -hmm. you know, just maybe not to be so hard on myself, I guess that would probably be my best advice. Hmm. No, I think that's, I think it's really good. It's always a fun question too, just to kind of see what people feel like, um, are big cultural, I guess, big cultural things that are, whether it's in the saltwater, freshwater, or even stream, what, what are some things that you feel like the bass culture world, for lack of a better phrase, gets right that other fishing cultures could learn from? I think just the, the down-to-earth mentality. I mean, I think one thing that I've noticed is that, you know, most people when you start out bass fishing, again, you're fishing maybe in your neighborhood pond or in a small lake, and it's what you grew up doing, and you have this really kind of common sense, just easy approach to it, and it's a lot more laid back, and I think that, you know, sure, competitive bass anglers are very intense, and they're very, um, you know, they're very specific about all their different techniques, but I think on a recreational level, if you think about most freshwater fishing for bass or other freshwater species you know people are it's it's just very it's a lot more simplistic and approachable and and people are just a lot more willing to 
share information and be open. And, and I don't mean sharing information about, you know, necessarily certain spots. I mean, we're all, you know, I mean, it's, it's more generally about, listen, if you want to get into fly fishing for largemouth bass, here's a few great fly patterns that you can try and, you know, try these Mm -hmm. in your backyard and you're probably going to have success. So I just think it's, it's just that down earth, that down earth nature and that approachability factor. Mm -hmm. I I can, I completely agree. What are some ways that your background in writing and marketing has helped you as a guide and angler? Just research. I mean, research, 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 Mm. because as a writer, you are required to interview the best of the best. I've written articles for Florida Game and Fish, and I've had to interview a lot of FWC, Florida Fish and Wildlife biologists. And by talking to them, I have learned so much about a lot of our different freshwater fisheries and you know, that education just keeps building because every time you write an article, I mean, I really enjoy writing articles about things that I don't, you know, different aspects of fishing that I don't know as much about because it's an opportunity to learn. So definitely, I think just Mm. it's the research that's involved in it, hands down. Do you have any tips on how people can do good research for when it comes to angling? For sure. And I mean, these days, the great thing about the internet is that (laughs) we have a lot of resources that are available Mm -hmm. to us. I mean, even aside from the internet, both online and offline, the one thing that um, I did here in Florida is, like, for example, um, I went up to the Florida Bass Conservation Center, which is our Florida is one of our largest fish hatcheries, and I would highly recommend. So for people who have not visited a hatchery, have not, you know, talked in person with some of these biologists, do that. Take the opportunity if you can, because you will learn so much about all of the different fish species and their life cycles and their breeding, you know, behaviors. Mm. And it's just, it's a wealth of knowledge. I mean, here, I had no idea until I went to the Florida Bass Conservation Center and started talking to one of the the hatchery managers there that, you know, we, our Florida strain largemouth came to be because of the Lake Wells Ridge here in Florida, which was basically an ancient chain of sand islands in the middle of our state. And they were the only part of the state of Florida that were above water during the ice age. And so unique life forms developed and that's how our Florida strain bass developed was on that ridge. So, you know, you learn things when you have those experiences and you seek out knowledge. So I would say, you know, take any opportunities you can to actually go and do field trips. I mean, I call them field trips and that's exactly what I did when I went to the hatchery and then just, you know, learn, talk to other, you know, talk to other knowledgeable guides that you respect and read some, you know, reputable, I mean, there's a lot of things on the internet and you need to sift through it certainly, but, you know, ask around and find out about which are some of the most reputable online publications and then read as much as you can. Um, I also read a lot of books, so I would recommend definitely There's a book from a saltwater perspective here that I love to read called Florida Masters, Florida's Master Anglers written by Ron Presley. And 
Ron interviewed a number of different saltwater anglers on all of their different techniques, and I think it's it's a fantastic book for the reason mm -hmm. that it compares a lot of different, you know, a lot of different guide styles and techniques. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other uh, publications or websites or places that you feel like are are putting out good writing and content for people to learn? Absolutely. I mean, takemefishing.org for sure is is one of those, especially for beginning or, you know, newcomers to the sport. I would say from a freshwater perspective, I mean, Florida Game and Fish is, is another one. Um, I would say aside from that, there is a book called High Percentage Fishing by Josh Elwine that I would also highly recommend. <laughs> it's a great book. Um, those are three off the top of my head. No, those those are all good. So my last question is uh, one I, ha I haven't asked it in a while, and I really do like it. Um, it kind of gives a pretty good inside peek on people's mentality, but what does success in the end look like to you? Like, what does a successful career look like? Ooh, another really good question, Hunter. Um, you know, repeat business, clients that keep coming back year after year, and, you know, they come back because of the experiences that they've had with me, and I think just, yeah, being able to continue doing what I'm doing uh, you know, there's not a day that goes by when someone doesn't catch a fish. And, you know, I get just as excited when I watch one of my clients bring in a fish for, you know, a, a beautiful largemouth bass or peacock bass for the first time. I feel like it's, you know, I have the same level of excitement as if it were me doing it. And, mm -hmm. um, and to me, you know what, that's, that is success right there. That feeling of, of happiness and just contentment and, and doing, what you love and following your passion. Mm. Well, I have really enjoyed this conversation. It's been filled with all sorts of great tips and insights, and it gets me excited to think about some of the freshwater opportunities that you guys have going on down in South Florida. And like I mentioned to you before, I hope that I can uh, squeeze it into a trip and get out there and catch a peacock bass. I've never caught a peacock bass before. So. Oh yeah. You got to do it. <laughs> yep. You got to come down and do it one of these days for sure. Absolutely. But thank you so much for being on this podcast. I really appreciate it and hope you have a great day. Yeah. Thanks, Hunter. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks again for listening to the Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. Four in the morning. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky.